It's been said that Advent is only good news to those living a troubled life in this world. This past week, we lost um, a very important man in our national life, President George H.W. Bush. And you know that I don't speak politics from the pulpits and will continue to not do that. However, um, I don't think we can go without taking a minute and reflecting on such a man. For he was a man of great honor, man of great faith, a fellow Anglican, and a man who we believe is now with the Lord. I saw this beautiful cartoon, it was from a newspaper on Facebook posted this week, and it was a picture of uh, George Bush's fighter plane from World War II landed in the clouds, perhaps you saw this too, um, and he was embracing Barbara, and they were turning and running with their young daughter, Robin, into the clouds. The quote that went around it, that went along with it, was actually something to the effect of George Bush not being afraid of death. He said, at one point I was afraid of death, but now I look forward to it, to see my loved ones that have gone before. And for those of you that don't know his story, he and Barbara, his wife, lost Robin to leukemia. Uh, she was about three or four years old, I think. And so they're now reunited. It's that sense, with that sense, with that idea that we come to Advent. That this world is not our home. That this world is not our final place to be. And that the tragedies of this world, whether personal or as a community, are not the last word. For four weeks, we celebrate the season of Advent. We're dedicated to prayer, fasting. It's a time of confession. You heard the exhortation read in its fullness this morning because of that. And since the year 600, the church has put aside four weeks to prepare for the arrival of Jesus. But it's not just the arrival of Jesus back when he first came incarnate. It's the arrival of Jesus looking forward when he shall once again come. And so in Advent, you have two types of waiting going on, at least. Looking backwards, looking forwards. In the Middle Ages, the church thought that there were 4,000 years from the time of creation to Jesus' arrival. And that's where the four weeks come from, actually. Each candle is to represent a thousand years, which reminds us, of course, of the psalm that for the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. In Advent, we're invited to see from the time of creation to Jesus' birth represented in these four Sundays. And in Advent, we're to look back and forward, back to the winter of years before Jesus came to unbind and save mankind. And we're also to look forward to when he's going to come again, because Advent means to come, but it can also mean to approach. In both the Old Testament and the Gospel reading today, the return of the Lord is described, and it's no Jesus meek and mild. Whether it's talking about the Lord in the Zechariah passage, 
or Jesus talking about himself as the son of man in the Lucan passage. The images we given of scripture are images of force. They're images of incredible upheaval. After the prophet, the prophet Zechariah, he's writing to the Hebrew people, and he's writing to them just 20 years after they've returned from their exile in Persia. So think to yourself what's going on here in their minds. They've finally come home. They've finally been released from exile. They're finally rebuilding. And then we have the passage today. It seems doom and gloom. But look at it more closely. Because you have to look at what's going on in Zechariah's time more closely. And again, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to the book of Zechariah. It's towards the, old, the end of the Old Testament. But I'll just give you some, some highlights here. What's going on? Well, Zechariah's prophesying about the coming of Christ, both comings of Christ. In Zechariah 9.9, he predicts Jesus' entry to Jerusalem. 400 years or more before it happens. In chapter 11, he talks about Israel's worthless leaders. In chapter 12, he talks about how they shall pierce them. So how they shall pierce him, rather. That is Jesus. In chapter 13, he talks about how two-thirds shall perish and the others shall be tested. And then we come up with chapter 14, picking up with today's text, which starts with the end of this texting. It's rather harsh. But the Lord is the Lord of battle for his people. It's out of his love that comes this harshness. It's out of his desire to rescue us that comes this picture. This is to acknowledge that the forces of evil aren't something to be laughed at. There's something to be reckoned with. Look at verse 1 and 2. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half the city shall go into exile. What's going on here? It seems like a very strange reading from the Bible. But do you see what Zechariah is explaining is the depth of wickedness and sin. The depth of what Jesus rescues us from. It's not something just to be sloughed off. But notice, those forces do not have the last word. Look at verses 4 through 5a. On this day... His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem in the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split into two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains. Again, what's Zechariah talking about here? He's using imagery for this is verse and he's talking about how the Lord literally will move mountains to provide a path to rescue his people. That's the kind of love the Lord of battle has for us, his people. Continue with 5b. It won't just be him. 
For the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Then the, God will, the Lord will come, and all the holy ones with him. What are these holy ones that he's talking about? Well, according to Luke 24, 31, these are the angels that will accompany Christ in his coming. Some also think that it's also the martyrs and great saints that will accompany Christ with his final coming. The fullness of the kingdom of God shall come, though. And the image of water that's used is this image that prefigures baptism, God's saving life. God's sustaining life. We see the image come back in in Revelation too to tie things together. This idea that the Lord will save and sustain his people. In today's gospel reading, Jesus continues to speak prophetically to his disciples. Look with me at Luke chapter 21. Jesus and the disciples are inside the temple at this point. And if you look at the rest of the chapter in your Bibles, you'll see what's going on. There actually, this, this section of teaching starts with Jesus with his disciples looking at the widow giving her last mite. It starts with the widow's mite. So they're actually inside the temple grounds when Jesus is saying this. As they're admiring the stones, the beauty of the temple that surrounds him. Jesus speaks of persecution. He speaks of the temple's destruction, which of course happens in 70 AD. In today's gospel, Jesus gives us an image of himself. In verse 25 through 27, we read, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the power of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Let's stop there for a minute. Jesus Christ, the king's return, is much more like what Zechariah is talking about than it is like what we see in the incarnation. Jesus' second advent will not be as a babe, but will be as a man, will be as the son of man, coming in all his glory, in all his majesty, and it will be intensely disruptive. It'll bring fear. It'll bring trembling. But notice, who's afraid? The distressing nations, right? Who's afraid? Those that have not dealt with the reality of Jesus Christ. Why would nations be distressed? Because their power and rule is about to be destroyed. Remember, last week how Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, And St. Augustine spoke of Jesus' kingship not being a threat. Well, that wasn't the end of the story. Woe to those who try and those who misuse power 
and those who have put their trust in the institutions of this world, for those, there will be great fear and trembling. Bishop J.C. Ryle of the 19th century writes, the thoughtless and impenitent man may well tremble when he hears of the second advent of Christ. What will he do when worldly business is suddenly stopped and the precious things of this world are made worthless? What will he do when the graves on every side are opening and the trumpet is summoning them to judgment? What will he do when the same Jesus whose gospel he has so shamefully neglected shall appear in the clouds in heaven? It won't be pretty. Rejecting the gospel or being indifferent to God's eternal will has consequences. And no one knows, and no one knows, as the old saying goes, when he'll go to meet his maker. But what Jesus is talking about here is when the maker comes to meet us. Hosea chapter 10 verse 8 writes, And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall upon us. It's that kind of fear that you should have if you're not right with God through Jesus Christ. It would be better, says Hosea, for a mountain to fall on you because at least then you'd be covered up. At least then you wouldn't be in front of the searing wrath of God. Why? Well, because if you've rejected him, his judgment is eternal. Just like if you've embraced him, the life is eternal. We continue looking at verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So what's the Christian response to this? Are Christians to be shaking in their boots? No, not according to Jesus. For a Christian, they're supposed to stand straight and lift up their heads. The Greek is actually a word that means straighten up. It's also a word that means literally lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes for your redemption is near. While those who've denied Christ and the gospel would prefer the mountains to fall on them, those in Christ have nothing of which to be ashamed because you've been clothed in Christ. The son of man has made things right, has been the righteous sacrifice for you. That is Jesus. In fact, Jesus is saying, look up, put your heads high. Why? Because you're going to be vindicated. All of this stuff that you've done throughout your life for the glory of God and not for your own glory, all the sacrifices you've made to better follow Jesus, your redemption is near. It won't go unnoticed. It's not pointless. In fact, it is the reality, though you might see it as something in the background. It, Jesus' reign, is the reality, and your faith life is the reality. Do you see what he's saying here, friends? The importance of taking this to heart of Christ, what Christ has done for us. Not to be ashamed as Christians, 
but to be proud's the wrong word, but confident, to be confident in your faith in Christ because of what he's done. Look at verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, Jesus says after talking about the fig tree. Everything else is going to go away. Everything else in your life will fade into nothingness. Compared to Jesus. And that's good news. St. Chrysostom writes of this passage that uncertainty always makes a person careless. But we prepare ourselves earnestly only for what we truly believe will happen to us. I must confess that each year I look forward to praying the collect for the first Sunday in Advent. We prayed it together earlier to cast off the works of darkness. And I always kind of add in my own mind to cast off the thoughts of darkness, to cast off the words of darkness, to cast off the actions of darkness, to cast out of me those things that are darkness, those things that blur my vision of Jesus and his coming again. It's so easy to see the darkness as what is real. But as the apostle John tells us in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If, anything, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father, not in them. For everything in the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And how do we do the will of God? Well, St. Paul tells us when he writes to the Thessalonians in our epistle verse, he commends us to God. He says, now may God our Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our ways to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So friends, when you hear these passages, there should be two forms of urgency you walk away with today. Number one, Jesus' coming again is not good news for those who have rejected him. Jesus' coming again is not good news for those that are indifferent to him. And you and I have been called to be vessels of good news to those folks so that they might come to know and love Jesus. It is urgent that we witness to Jesus. It is urgent because he would not lose one soul, as the exhortation says. Number two, it's urgent for us to not walk with our minds clouded by the things of this world, but to remain true, to see Christ's love for us, to see his sacrifice for us, to cast off the works of darkness, the thoughts of darkness, the actions of darkness, and instead put on the armor of light. 
put on Jesus Christ. Let it sink richly into you so that every day of your life you're living out that reality, the true reality, and not the false reality. O haste Zion, we sung. What is it, the peace that it brings? It's not an earthly peace. It's not just an end to all war. It's not just an end to the ugliness, but it's an end to the war that goes on between God's creatures, between us, and with the war that goes on inside of us, that battle that is constantly fighting between realities. Oh, haste Zion, bring us this peace. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.